go. Go. That's the way he <laughs> wants to start. Brilliant. Hello, everybody. Hello, listening world, and welcome to Football Unfocused, the shambolic weekly football podcast delivered by two old pals from the old days, the good old days, Matthew <laughs> and Mark. I am Mark, and that sort of laughing, <laughs> spluttering mess of a noise you can hear is Matthew. Hello, Matthew. Uh, hello, hello. How uh, are you, Matthew? I'm good, I'm good. That's, I like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a nice intro. It's sort of, it's it's probably how my mum sees me when she sort of first... Gave birth to you. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So it's seen me sort of pop out between her legs. Yeah. Oh, nice. It's an, it's an evocative image. Um, yeah, but now it's good. I've obviously moved up to Manchester on Monday. Matthew, would you like to clarify that sentence? Uh, moved out to Glossop in Derbyshire. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So, for the purposes of the uh, of the tape, the the football unfocused family is now divided by many, many more miles than was previously the case. We are now in uh, separate ends of the country. I remain in uh, in East London, and Matthew, um, for reasons that I won't, you know, go go into it for for the purposes of pro- protecting his his uh, much. Uh, much, credibility. M- well, he's, he's, yeah, yeah, there's no credibility, mate. Um, but I was going to say for protecting your much uh, prized um, uh, privacy, uh, his partner has a job in the um, in the Manchester area. So like any uh, sort of self-respecting man or, or woman looking to relocate to Manchester, he's moved to Derbyshire. Um, <laughs> haven't you, Matthew? It's the best part of Manchester. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The bit that isn't Manchester. Yeah, yeah. Outrageous. So all our plans that, you know, in our group of friends to sort of come and visit you, all based around nights out in the great city of Manchester, uh, are now (laughs) moot because uh, you are living in the Peak District. (laughs) Yeah. I hear that, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's where the hacienda could have been set up if yeah, it wasn't Glossop. in it, it Glossop. Sorry, Glossop. sorry, Matt, I'm just struggling to hear you a little bit. I think it's your thick um, Peak District accent that you've picked up. <laughs> you've picked up since Monday. Can you just tone it down a little bit? And remember what you spoke like <laughs> where before. I'm from. Yeah. So I'm from. Yeah, I need to remember. I'm from Surrey, West Byfleet. <laughs> Uh, I've just finished a, uh, I've just finished a, uh, a mile swim and I was, uh, tossing over some questions, uh, in my head while swimming, um, the, uh, 32 lengths of the beautiful Olympic swimming pool in, uh, London's Olympic Park. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's all part of the ongoing project, Matthew, to learn more about you. <laughs> right. Um, and it's something that I want to do and I've known you for nearly 30 years, but, more to the point, Matthew, our listeners are desperate, desperate <laughs> to know more about you. Matthew, what's your most prized possession? Um, and can I just interject and say, as a man who's just moved house and packed all your possessions, yeah, every, should, everything you own should be quite fresh in your memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, probably my smartphone. Your phone. That is is awful, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe... um, It really is. It's deeply depressing. Just... I don't know. I I was going to say something a bit dirty, but... 
Yeah, don't just don't do that. Don't don't lower the tone. But I but I'm now absolutely fascinated to know what the fuck you were going to say. I mean, Christ, what depraved item do you own that's dirty and that's a dirty, but b at the same time a contender to be your most prized possession. It says so much about you as a character that there's something in that head of yours that is uh, (laughs) even in the conversation. Yeah, where's the? Oh no, don't worry, I know where it is. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Is it one of those chairs that shags you that you've got in the in the dungeon? (laughs) Yeah, good. (laughs) Right, brilliant. So your answer is your phone. What an awful, depressing, dystopian answer. Well. I didn't. I don't write the questions. No, but you answer them. <laughs> don't blame the fucking questioner. You're worse than Boris Johnson. That's outrageous. It's not the fault of the questioner. I've got every right. This is an open democracy. I've got every right to scrutinise your personality. <laughs> how, you know, how can I get away with things when people can ask me about things that I've done? Wrong? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> how can I keep getting away with lying if I keep lying and then people keep asking me about it rather than just accepting the lie? Yeah, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. Okay, Matthew, what's your view on the World Cup next year being in Qatar and at Christmas? See what I've done there? I've tried to find out some views uh, from you that are about oh. football. Yeah, I know. That. Yeah, I know. You, oh, you, you, you tested me. You mm. tested me. <laughs> okay, I'll ask another question, actually, rather than that. That might be a bit too much too soon. Do you... <laughs> Did you know that there's a World Cup next year in Qatar at Christmas? Uh, yes, yeah, you no, I do. Okay, it, it does. It does throw me though when someone says the World Cup's next year, and yeah. you think, we you think, oh, one. summer. Yeah, yeah, and also, didn't we just have something about football in the summer? Wow, like, a few months ago. Uh, wow, I mean, good God, where do I start with that sentence? I mean, that was the Euros. It's a completely different thing. It was no, uh, know, delayed by one year. It, was... it only it only involved teams from one one continent. Um, the World Cup's not been played since 2018. Good God! Why do I why why why, why, not... why do I bother with this shit? There's not many good. <laughs> there's not many good things though to say about the World Cup next year. I feel it's slightly like the World Cup seems to be falling into the same you know, trap as F1. It seems to be just a a whistle-stop tour of all authoritarian, yeah. stroke dictator-run mm. countries around the world. A sports-washing shop window. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't disagree with you, Matthew. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely at this stage with, like, what is it now, just, just under a year to go, having a real kind of conversation with myself that's, that's <laughs> becoming... You know, more, more, a bit more intense now. It's less of the year as, <laughs> as to whether I can actually watch it, like whether whether mm. watching it is endorsing it. And you know, I couldn't, I couldn't be more against everything that it stands for. The way the workers have been treated, you know, literally like animals have been. You know, there's there's the recent Amnesty International survey said like ninety percent of the workers have been uh, either not paid at all or had their sort of contracts broken, are living in squalor, have no health and safety. Obviously, thousands have died building the stadiums. I know that some well, some people will argue, and it is perfectly legitimate, they'll say that 
one of the best ways to affect change in a regime is actually to expose it and you can expose mm. it by visiting it and allowing the rest of the world to kind of have their have their say and i guess there might be some truth in that and you know i very much hope that happens I was listening to the um the south american football expert tim vickery a few weeks ago and he used the example of the 1978 world cup which um the military dictatorship at the time in argentina were very much hoping would be a tournament that would kind of uh, glorify and vindicate their their brutal regime um, in which kind of young and creative and liberal-minded people had been killed in their thousands. I think there's up to 30,000 deaths at the hands of that uh, government and they'd built um, a wall to, to hide the, um, the, the sort of slums to stop the journalists from seeing them. But the problem is building that wall just made more people more inquisitive and journalists who were good at their jobs just, you know, continue to dig. And you could, you could make a case that even though they, they actually won that World Cup, that in doing so, in, in hosting it, it was kind of the beginning of the end for a regime that over the next few years became more and more kind of desperate to hold on to, um, to power. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a really weird thing. I wish I wish I just wish that we didn't have to think about shit like that and we could just enjoy mm. enjoy the World mm. Cup but, and but that's the consequence of making corrupt decisions uh, sort of 10 years ago in the Blatter days. I'd like to think it'd be different now but it probably won't be next time they uh, they have a tender. I know they've, they've awarded the next one to on the surface, you know, three legitimate bids for uh, joint bids across the continent of North America but um yeah, it's all pretty grim. Okay, well, thank you for sharing your um, your 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 point of view on that, uh, Matthew. Um, That's all right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what I've done there is I've given you a kind of light-hearted question, then quite a heavy question, and I'm now yeah. just going to end on a uh, on, on just a light-hearted question again. Matthew, <laughs> right. So Ma- I was wondering Ma- what you were going to yeah, say. Yeah, it's a shit sandwich with the shit being the serious <laughs> subject. Matthew, what yeah. do you want for Christmas? Um, think of me as Santa. Yeah, come and I'll sit on my knee. Say, so tell me what you me- want. <laughs> um, so we don't have a dishwasher in our new place. Oh so no! So I'd like some um, some really absorbent um, tea towels. <laughs> um, we've got some good ones, but they're getting a bit old at the moment. Mm. So. Just, just so I can have one, a, a fresh one every day, that'd be nice. I mean, you could just wash them. Well, yeah, but I just it sometimes gets backed up the washing basket. <laughs> yeah, well, before it finds itself, you in could the just wash basket. them before before the wash basket gets backed up. Yeah, you could just well, organise yourself uh, effi- efficiently. You, you work from home. You're there all day. <laughs> <laughs> these are all valid valid points. I guess another option is, of course, that you could. Um, you know, buy a dishwasher, but then, but then we established a few weeks ago that your your dishwasher regime is absolutely chaotic and out of control. Um, <laughs> well, that's it. We in established the, in that the world a, of Mark. Well, we established yeah, that three or four episodes ago, and I actually had people, um, one one um, representative from our uh, Iberian um, uh, football unfocused uh, uh, fan club wing. I would say the president of the the Iberian wing. <laughs> Directly contacting me about how outrageous your your dishwasher regime was oh, and how no. affronted uh, this individual was about your, some of the details that were coming out of your. It was really was painting a picture of you as a as a chaotic <laughs> individual. <laughs> Just, I know. I told Joe about your system of um, organising um, your 
basket, utensils basket. Mm. Um, and she was like, oh, yeah, that would be better if you did it like that. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I don't think it's my system, Matt. I can't really take credit for that. I think it's it's one that I, I reckon if oh, you did a straw pile, I reckon 90, 90% <laughs> of people with dishwashers put the cutlery so that they are in groups that are of the same denomination so that they can easily then remove those items. I feel a Twitter poll coming along. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the hot topics. I mean, there's some big stuff going on this week, uh, but this will really, you know, take it all off the front pages. Who cares about illegitimate Christmas parties from leading government figures a year ago? Who cares about uh, the potential return of uh, lockdown, me- well, minimal, you know, lockdown uh, measures and, and, and all of that to mitigate the spread? No, it's uh, it, it's going to be swept away by the uh, the rush to have their say on, uh, on, on on dishwasher loading regimes. And quite rightly so, Matthew. Yeah, so, Matthew, on the subject of football, has anything grabbed your attention this week? Because last week you obviously stunned me and you stunned us oh, all by coming no. up with an absolute gem of a topic. I feel I've done myself a disservice there by saying something that was half valid. Mm. Um you mean you've 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 raised expectation that you can't possibly <laughs> yeah. continue yeah, to fulfil? Yeah, I'll never fulfil. Um, okay, well I'll go with this and then potentially cut it out. But uh... brilliant! That's always a confident start, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say something, Sorry. but I suspect it's going to be shit, and I'm going to cut it out. Good. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, Mo Salah and Liverpool had an incredible match the other night, um, and soon after that um, result they were talking about the contract for Mo Salah and how they're looking to renegotiate before it ends in 2023 and it was just interesting how and I guess this goes back to the emotional attachment that people have the emotional association that have with football and it's so difficult for someone like you know Mo Salah who's absolutely adored by Liverpool fans and he is rightly trying to ensure that he um, utilises his time at the top of the game, uh, a very short, relatively very, very short time that he'll, he'll never earn as much money doing anything else in his life. Yep. Um, but he has to, he's clearly has to be very careful in the way he sort of um, talks about these contracts. I've heard him say something like, I would like to stay at Liverpool, but it's not really in my hands. This is sort of being discussed, you know. So he almost removes himself from the negotiation. And I heard Michael Owen sort of saying, oh, these contracts need, you know, it's very, very complicated, so they need to take their time. But I guess I was just thinking, well, Mo Salah is just, you know, trying to obviously, you know, get his just just reward. No, he's absolutely right. That's a really good observation. To be fair, and oh, and that's, an, that's two two in a row. <laughs> oh, no. Strike. Um, no, but it's true because not. And I don't want to, you know, make this um, specifically about uh, Mo Salah, but g- generally footballers, you know, they. And I'm particularly talking about kind of elite footballers. You get such a, a short window of time to um, maximize your um, your earning potential and to be. Uh, remunerated for in the in the right way for your talent and what you provide for your employer, and this is one of the reasons why I, I object to people's um, 
people's kind of fury and indignation about the the wages footballers earn. Because, look, if you started everything from scratch and developed society from the from the beginning and paid everybody uh, based on merit in terms of what they produce and its importance to society, then clearly, you know, nurses and doctors and teachers would be the, the best paid among us. But unfortunately, society isn't, um, you know, built on those principles. It's built on, uh, you know, things like supply and demand and market forces. So your value to an organisation is based on the the what you bring to the table in terms of performance and other benefits that you um, um, supply as a result of you being under contract and turning up and representing that organisation. And so I would never... You know, footballers are are, all, are still to this day, um, you know, almost universally from working class backgrounds, and they're they're normally people who um, haven't grown up with huge amounts of money. So, um, particularly people uh, like Mo Salah from North Africa, where he um, will have, you know, he he didn't have much money at all when he was growing up, so he will be almost certainly uh, bankrolling a whole network of people back home, you know, a, 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 an extended family. But also I know that he gives huge amounts of money to his um, to his village where he grew up and um, a foundation that he runs back home as well. So there is absolutely, it's the right of every footballer, despite the kind of, you know, the classic fury of the tabloid newspaper to talk about their, their greed and stuff. And it's interesting because those same... Um, organs of the media don't tend to focus on the outrageous amounts of uh, bonuses that people who work in the finance sector uh, get on a regular basis um, and people who head up uh, the very organisations that they work for, you know, uh, uh, the, the kind of, you know, the, the oligarchs essentially who run the big uh, the big media um, uh, organisations, uh, but also in other sports, in, in kind of more middle-class sports, you know, um, Top Formula One drivers earn more than any Premier League footballer. Same with golf, you know. Um, people, I mean, I'm, I'm not hugely informed on golf uh, outside of sort of Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy. I'm, I'm a little bit lost, but I know that, you know, is it Dustin Johnson and people like that, these kind of, you know, elite Americans, you know, they all roll into one to me. But they, that, they, out, they earn outrageous amounts of money. Tennis as Tennis. well. You know, Federer and Nadal and Djokovic earn money that, that you know, Premier League footballers would only be able to dream of uh, earning. A lot of that is possibly because they're individual sports, so everything's focused on them rather than their organisation. So they, you know, all of the endorsements and the sponsorships and the the prize money and everything is them, and I guess their team. Um, but even so, nobody you you don't hear people objecting to that in the same way as they do with football and and footballers. Not it's not just the fact that they have a short career, but it's also that. Because of the nature of what they do, you know, it's, it is dangerous. I know it's nowhere near as physical as it was in the, you know, even up to the, the 80s and early to mid 90s. Uh, and they tend to play now on these beautiful carpet pitches where, you know, everything's perfect. The run of the ball is true. The rule changes have been designed to protect players. So, you know, the chance of getting studs raked down your your Achilles and your calf that give you a career-ending injury is much less than would have been uh, previously. 
but it still happens. You still get players now who are kind of at their peak or approaching their peak or showing great potential who get an injury as a result of a bad tackle or a bit of bad luck, twist the wrong way, land the wrong way, and they're never the same again. And, you know, it might be then that if they were in the last six months of their contract at that time, they then don't get offered a contract, never get themselves to a level of physical performance where another club is going to want them, or even if they do, to pay them anywhere near that same amount of money. You look at someone like uh, Jack Wilshere in recent years, I think he's a really good example of somebody who came through um, as Arsenal's kind of most prized, uh, prodigious talent through their youth system, and um, just looked out like he had absolutely everything, and uh, almost, uh, it's, it wouldn't be quite so uncommon now, because we seem to be producing uh, all these kind of young, talented, technically gifted kids that the, the likes of which we never used to uh, in the past. And when I say we, I mean England. Um, but uh, but Wilshire kind of 10 years ago was against the tide and he, he kind of displayed a lot of the, um, the the kind of characteristics and the skills that you would typically associate with a Spanish player or a German or a, an Italian. He was such a brilliant, naturally gifted um, footballer but his career now is essentially over. I think he's, I mean, he might not even be 30. And if he is, he's only just 30. And really, the last five years have been a write-off. So his whole career can be whittled down to um, three seasons, maybe, of solid football. And that is because he's, he's, some people will argue that his lifestyle, he never took seriously enough. He was often caught like smoking and things like that. But I, I suspect that there are other footballers who don't get injuries and, um, you know, sort of look like everything's fine from the outside looking in, who also do stuff like that and it doesn't get picked up on. I think it did with Jack Wilshire because of the, the kind of frustration. And what you get as well is a narrative around people start to get so frustrated with players who are continually injured that they almost like blame them. Like it's their fault. And it's so harsh to do that. Like it's because, you know, imagine you get one chance at that career. You've developed, you've devoted everything in your life to, to be that, um, that professional footballer. And yes, you can say you're still, uh, even, even with, you know, he will probably still have enough money to sort him out the rest of his life. But it's, if you, and you do have footballers who see it as a, as, as a trans, transactional thing. Not all footballers love the game, but most do. Most are in it because they love it and they're more bothered about, you know, if you said to them, you can only have a quarter of the money you earned in your career, but you get to leave having won every major medal and being regarded as a, a sort of generational great of the game. They would all, almost all take that over, over the money. Um, so these contracts are, are massive deals and you probably get two or three if you're lucky in your career. And someone like Salah at the moment, you know, with the possible exception of his first season at Liverpool, 2017, 2018, you know, this is, he's in the form of his life. He scored 20 goals before, uh, it's even Christmas in all competition. He's the first, uh, Liverpool player to score 20 goals or more in five consecutive seasons since Ian Rush in the 1980s. Rush did it six times, and I've no doubt if Mo carries on the way he's going at the moment, he'll he'll match that record. And he's now got what 18 months on a contract that's running down. He'll always he'll already be tremendously well paid, but he's advised by people who will know exactly what his earning potential is. And even if he's sincerely intending to stay at Liverpool, it makes perfect sense for him to be slightly evasive about it. You don't want to completely show your hand. And when he says it's out of his control, I don't think he's being disingenuous there. I think that, you know, he, he will be saying, okay, we have made it clear to the club, or my representative made it clear for the club, what I 
require in order to stay and it's up to the club to give it to him. And, and you know, there's a little bit of previous there, not not specifically with, with Mo Salah, but one of Liverpool's key players over the last five years was Ginny Wijnaldum. He was an absolute, you know, in a lot of ways he kind of held the team together. Really, uh, like such an incredibly reliable and high quality central midfielder one of the most, uh, first names on the team sheet. He was a key part of the team that was getting better and better and then won the Champions League and the Premier League. And he went on a free last uh, last summer to PSG. And that wasn't because he was desperate to get out of the club. I think it's common knowledge that the club played hardball with his with his salary and were just trying to drive a hard bargain and, and were prepared to see him go. Um, and ultimately that game of brinkmanship, uh, you know, you could say it backfired. You could also say it backfired on Ginny because he's ended up, I think he, he's always had an ambition to join Barcelona. He ends up not getting that move because unluckily for him, him leaving coincided with Barcelona being in a perilous financial state that they've probably never been in in history. So his only real offer that, that could um, reward him the way he um, deserved is, was to PSG. Which, you know, great. You get to play with Messi. You get to live in Paris, all those things. But it's not even going particularly well for him. He's not even been getting picked in the starting level most weeks. So it, it, you know, it's a, it, it is a, a gamble in that respect. And Mo is probably looking at that saying, okay, well, you know, I don't really want to go down that road, but don't forget the players that do run down their contracts that there's a, there's a, it, it's risky because if you are in the, the, the end, the last few months of your contract and then you get a big injury, you're potentially writing yourself off completely. Um, but, and that does happen. But if you don't, then you'll be in a position where you're able to negotiate a, a, a move. Um, and the sums of money that you can earn are way beyond anything that you would even get by signing a massive new contract or getting a move under normal circumstances because things like, you know, the, 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 what you can do if you, if you're that good a player, you can go, you know, your proposition to your new employer can be, okay, well, you haven't had to spend 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 million on a transfer fee to get me. Um, so I think it's fair that a proportion of that, the, that we've saved comes to me personally. Um, plus, you know, the, the, the amount also that you've saved in a transfer fee should be divvied up over a four year period and reflected in my salary. So you can see that the temptation and, you know, see, it's very easy, I think, for people, um, like me who will never, ever earn that sort of money, you know, if I lived for uh, 10 lifetimes, um, to kind of just say, Oh, but how much money is, a, is enough? But it's really about you just reflecting your, your, um, your, your potential and making sure that, you know, compared to people who are performing in most cases, in the case of Mo Salah, to a lower standard in you, that you are kind of on a par with, uh, with them. Paul Pogba, you know, I mean, all right, people have varying opinions on whether he's actually brought any value to Old Trafford. But don't forget, when he signed, uh, when he went back to uh, to uh, Man United, what was it, about five years ago, it was for, a, at the time, a world record uh, fee. And yeah, he's flattered to deceive and he's been in and out of the team and he's had, you know, all sorts of issues, I think, with his, with his attitude and his performance. But he's still a, a world star. He's still a World Cup winner. He still, you know, gets picked for France pretty much every time, um, they go out on the pitch and he's going to be from January, because another, another quite quirk is that if you're in the last, um, six months of your contract, once you turn into into that last six months, you're actually able to sign a pre-contract agreement with another club, 
whilst still under contract with your uh, current employer, which I guess mitigates the risk a little bit of completely running it down. So from January onwards, Pogba is a massively high-profile player who's able to go to PSG, Real Madrid, whatever, wherever who, whoever's prepared to pay him, and sign a sign an agreement. And then you've got a, an asset who you know you've spent. 80 or 90 million pound on who's going for absolutely nothing. And yeah, you're right. You're making a massive saving on his wages. He's probably being paid about half a million quid a week, but still. So, so it is a, it's a, it's a tough thing. And, and then obviously there's a lot of emotion involved as well with any of these things. Cause if it's, if it's a highly prized player, then, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of emotional pressure to, from fans who could start to get a little bit impatient if they see, oh, another week's gone by and he's still not signed. But I mean, Michael Owen, he's, I thought he's, you know, he, he sometimes gets a lot of stick as a pundit, but I thought he was, he said some really quite insightful things about it because he, you know, he's a man who knows and he, don't forget, ran down his contract and, um, left Liverpool, uh, you know, as a, as a man who only a couple of years before had won the Ballon d'Or. And he was our top goal scorer for that sort of four or five year period from the late nineties and the early part of this uh, century. And he held, held firm and he wasn't happy with the direction at the club. And I don't think he was particularly impressed. Um, even when Rafa uh, Benitez got the job that, that he was going to do enough to turn it around and he wanted to play for Real Madrid. So he went, we got no money for him. And then he sat on the, I mean, this is, this is again, I'm not trying to rub it in, but this is an example of how it can go. He, he mostly sat on the bench and a year later was kind of surplus to requirements at Real Madrid and he left to win trophies. And then literally in that same season, he left Liverpool out of nowhere with a quite a poor, you know, an average side won the Champions League. Um, um, which will always be, I guess, a little <laughs> bit, a little bit funny from the Liverpool side of things, but, uh, but you know, so it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky thing. I mean, I think when when um, the 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 Bosman ruling, which we I think we discussed in the past, mm. and when that um, you know uh, became a thing in the uh, in the nineties, mid nineties, and changed the way in which footballers sort of shifted the power structure between clubs and players, I think there was an assumption then that every player contracts would be meaningless, and every player would always allow them to put themselves in a position where they had complete freedom of movement. Um, but that hasn't actually turned out to be the case because I think clubs have found ways. Well, firstly, they've just, <laughs> by just paying them extraordinary amounts of money. Um, but they find ways of, um, of just kind of offsetting the risk of losing assets by paying them more. And then they'll, they'll offer, that's why like, say Cristiano Ronaldo, the first time he was at Old Trafford, first time round, for about three years in a row, he was desperate to leave. He always wanted to play for uh, for Real Madrid. I think as a club, he, he grew up supporting and he was approaching his peak years. I think by then he was sort of around 24. And, and my understanding is that he signed a new contract on the basis of a promise that there was either a clause in there or a kind of an informal agreement that if Real Madrid come into you uh, for you at the end of X season, then we won't stand in any way. But the but then him signing the contract also protects the club, so he's giving a little bit back and you know recognizing the the value and the loyalty they've given to him and the money they've given to him by making sure that they get a transfer fee. And I think that's the way that's the kind of dynamic that is normally the case. Liverpool didn't spend much money at all last summer, and a lot of people were getting really quite uh, irate about that. Now we don't know how this season's going to end up, but as we sit here now on the 
uh, 9th of December, it certainly looks like it's not going to matter and that, you know, they're having a brilliant season, but maybe things will change. You never know. Football is a strange business. But what they did do is they um, very systematically went around and signed up all their key assets on longer-term new contracts, and that was essentially their spend in the summer of 2021, uh, with the exception of um, uh, Canato from Leipzig. So it's, it is, you know, really, really important. Um, and it is, um, it's, yeah, it, it, it is interesting that it hasn't necessarily evolved in the, in the same way, but it has without a doubt kind of, you know, benefited, uh, benefited footballers and who now, you know, earn money that, like, it's quite interesting actually. They match of the day do these, um, kind of offshoot programs that are also podcasts where, Gary Lineker, Alan Shearer and Micah Richards sit around and they come up with like top 10 lists of various criteria, you know, who they think is the best 10 goal scorers in the Premier League era, goalkeepers, whatever, great matches. And they'll occasionally um, start going into anecdotes. And Micah Richards is a real open book, very refreshingly. And he'll, he'll go into specifics about money he was earning. And he, he was talking about when he was, I think, 18 or 19, he overnight went from earning five grand a week to 50 grand a week. Mm-hmm. And the things he was doing to like fritter away <laughs> that money. And, you know, Alan Shearer, bear in mind in 1996, was the world's most expensive footballer. And he have spent a lot of his career on some big, big money. Um, Lineker, probably less so, but he, he, comparatively for the time, he was still earned a lot of money. But they were both like open mouthed looking at Michael Richards <laughs> that, that he, that he went from five grand to, uh, 50 grand overnight at the age of 19. Um, so it just goes to show, and, and there will be people now who are, um, you know, the age that Michael Richards was then who are earning sort of twice that. And it's just, it won't go on forever. They're, they're, you know, they I think the, what we're currently look, seeing with the struggles in the likes of um, Barcelona and Real Madrid and the kind of the financial model of some of the, the top European leagues outside of England um, is the struggle to kind of maintain that and the effect the, 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 the COVID crisis has kind of accelerated that trend towards kind of problems and kind of questioning it. And uh, a lot of elite clubs are in, you know, big trouble and, no, no finer example of that than the fact that this week, for the first time in 21 years, Barcelona have failed to get through the Champions League group stage, which is, you know, when you consider where they were only four or five years ago, it's, um, well, it's, it's just, it is unbelievable. You know, unbelievable is an overused term in football, but that really is unbelievable that Barcelona have got to the state they have. Um, but there you go. As we said a few weeks ago in our, in our superb podcast on, uh, the domination, Nothing's permanent. Football is cyclical, and all the, you know, it's all the better for it. Right. Anything to add, Matthew? Yeah. Any, no, no, any... that was great. Are we gonna? You don't have to talk about what I mentioned next. No, time. but I enjoy that. It means I don't have to try. Oh, okay. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, bear in mind, we've been doing this now for, you know, it'll be, it'll be a year before we know it. And up until the last two episodes, I've come up with every fucking subject. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's quite nice. I, I just put my headphones on and then riff on your, uh, you, you throw me a fucking bone and I devour it. It's, it's lovely. It's lovely. This must be what it's like to do a podcast with a normal person. <laughs> yeah. It's the move north. It's inspired yeah. you. Okay, well, on that on that uh, 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 small bombshell, it, it is time to uh, uh, say goodbye. 
I mean, that, 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 that really is it. Okay. You know, that, that, that's it. Goodbye. 